Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Do you ever feel like our side is losing in the spiritual battle? That the powers of darkness and evil are winning? Perhaps more specifically in our own lives, do you ever wonder why the Christian life is so hard? Why sin so easily ensnares us? Why our wholehearted resolve on Sunday morning to love Jesus better by obeying Him more has given way to blatant sin by Sunday evening? Today we continue our series, Winning Spiritual Battles Because We Use Our Spiritual Weapons. Paul tells us that to fight evil, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness. But most of us don't even know what the breastplate of righteousness is, much less how to put it on. At the end of this episode, we hope everyone has a clear picture of what this piece of armor is and are all winning more spiritual battles because we put it on. Thanks for joining us today for season number two, episode number 12 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Sir Winston Churchill famously said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. In the 1181 chapter world history book, The Bible, Already, by just the third chapter, human beings encounter a spiritual enemy who hates us and constantly seeks to lead us down a path to destruction, that is, rebellion against God. In the Bible's meta-narrative, Satan and the kingdom of darkness enter in chapter 3 and aren't destroyed until 1176 chapters later, just three chapters from the end of the biblical story in Revelation 20. Since the third chapter of Genesis, where Adam and Eve allied their kingdom with the powers of darkness, every page of human history is written against the backdrop of the clash between these alien powers and God's plan to send Christ to free Adam's kingdom from sin and its devastation. Paul gives us his perspective of what is really happening on the stage of world history. He writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do we really think we can stand up against those powers without figuring out how to be strong in the Lord by putting on the spiritual armor He's provided? Is there any reason why those enemies will not tear us to pieces? if we do not resist them with spiritual weapons? Could we ever hope to achieve our mission to establish Christ's agenda of righteousness over every sphere of life without taking on the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms who claim this world as their own? So let's dig into our study of the breastplate of righteousness. And right out of the gate, we've got a problem. What is your gut response to the word righteous? What comes to mind when you hear Ryan's consumed with being righteous or Lauren is focused on her own righteousness? This word does not appeal to us at all. The reason is that it has so many very unfortunate, very mistaken connotations. Let's try to distinguish the rich biblical meaning of this word from our sadly mistaken default ideas. First, the biblical concept of righteousness does not at all imply self-righteousness. 
The Greek word dikaiosine means that which conforms to the moral will of God. This word does not carry with it in any way the idea that this righteousness is earned, that it reflects an overestimation of one's own righteousness, or that this righteousness is in any way a basis for self-justification. Second, dikaiosine, the word for righteousness, is not used in the Bible primarily to describe the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. Rather, its more common use is a call to righteousness of character. It is true that we are justified by grace through faith alone. In response to faith as a one-time act of grace, Christ has declared us legally righteous. The law has no claim against us to condemn us for our sin. But the term righteousness has a much richer meaning in Scripture than just justification, a one-time act. Jesus, for example, urged us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Third, biblical righteousness is not legalism. Legalism's focus is on outward rule-keeping. It loads its proponents down with extreme applications of the law, which its advocates make binding. How could any Christian put his kids in public school? Everyone should keep the Sabbath the way I do. You watch an R-rated movie? Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. They paraded their righteousness by making it known that they tithe even on the smallest of their crops. Their external self-righteousness, nitpicking over application, was not real righteousness at all. Fourth, righteousness is not moralism. Moralism is obeying the moral law as a bargaining chip with God. Moralists might trust Christ for salvation, but are insecure in their love relationship with God. They aren't sure God will love them if they don't behave. Instead of the freedom to bask in God's unconditional love, a moralist has to be good so God loves him back and God will give him what he wants. Their obedience to God earns them the right to demand that God bless them in the ways they expect blessing. When God doesn't do that, their faith is shattered. The moral law oppresses them because they have to keep it for God to love them. The reality about spiritual growth, however, as Steve Brown points out, is only those who know God will love them, even if they never get better, will ever get any better. When they understand God's unconditional love, they will love the moral law, not hate it, and pursue true righteousness with all their hearts. It is God's path to life and to pleasing Him. So let's look at the appropriate garb that fits our work of seeking righteousness. Everyone knows that how he dresses in the morning depends on what he has planned for the day. We put on the breastplate of righteousness because working for righteousness in the world around us is our mission, and it begins with ourselves. Here are four reminders that seeking righteousness is our mission. First, Jesus taught that righteousness is to be our highest priority. You hear so often from me, but also from Jesus, 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Christ's mission was to invade Adam's kingdom, overthrow its invaders, Satan, sin, and death, and begin to fix everything broken by sin. Jesus is making everything right, that is, free from sin. If we think that pursuing righteousness means keeping a bunch of legalistic rules, we have missed the concept of righteousness, which comes from rightness. It is joining Jesus as he makes right whatever in Adam's kingdom was made wrong by sin. Believers love the moral law of God because it shows them how life was designed to be lived. David sang, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The second reminder that we should seek righteousness in our own lives is that that is God's purpose in redeeming us. Jesus, as he launched his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, quoted the great messianic passage of Isaiah 61, which says that God's purpose was to turn his people into oaks of righteousness. Here's what the kingdom of heaven looks like as we pray for it to spread over earth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What a picture of Christ and his kingdom invading earth. The third reminder to seek righteousness is the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. It shows us kingdom living and the character of Jesus. John MacArthur in his commentary set writes, This beatitude speaks of strong desire, of driving pursuit, of a passionate force inside the soul. It has to do with ambition ambition of the right sort, whose object is to honor, obey, and glorify God by partaking of his righteousness. This holy ambition is in great contrast to the common ambitions of men to gratify their own lusts, accomplish their own goals, and satisfy their own egos. The third reminder that we should seek righteousness is that seeking righteousness of character is not only not legalistic, it is the proper response to God's grace. It is the way we love God back. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
But in the next verse in Deuteronomy, God tells us how he wants us to love him with all of our hearts. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Jesus taught us the same thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Christ followers hunger and thirst for righteousness in their lives and over the world because they know that is what is best for themselves in all of creation. They also know that seeking righteousness, dikaiosune, that which conforms to the moral will of God, is the best way to please him. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness every day is to renew our commitment to pursue righteousness that day. It is similar to saying, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Having said that, we must also say loudly that righteous character and righteous behavior is impossible to achieve apart from being in Christ. That is depending upon him for strength. Taking up the breastplate of righteousness is asking for Christ's help. And here's why. When Paul challenged Christ followers to put on the armor of God, he was not only thinking of the Roman guards around him, but of Isaiah's prophecy that only the Lord himself could come to establish righteousness over the earth. Isaiah's prophecy tells us the Messiah would, quote, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. We are to passionately pursue righteousness in our character and rightness for the things broken by the reign of sin. But we are reminded that it is only in Christ, through our abiding relationship with him and using his supernatural armor, that righteousness can prevail. Putting on the breastplate is asking Christ for help. Let's look at how the breastplate of righteousness is protection. In the Roman world, the breastplate was the piece of armor that ran from the neck to the middle. It protected the vital internal organs, especially the heart. We've seen what righteousness is, conformity to the moral will of God, that is the moral law. We now examine four practical ways that righteousness protects our heart. First, imputed righteousness protects our heart from the devil's accusations. Knowing that Christ's righteousness is credited to us, justification, means there is no legitimate accusation against us. The judge himself has declared us doubly not guilty. First, because all our sins were laid on Christ and paid for at the cross. And second, his perfect straight-A moral report card has Jesus' name erased and ours written in. If you put this breastplate on, which says across the chest there is no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Satan, the accuser of believers, cannot get through to weaken you with words like, You hypocrite? Do you really think a holy God wants to hear you talk again with him about your sin? If you were really sorry, you wouldn't commit that same sin again. How dare you try to be the spiritual leader of your home? If your family knew what you were looking at online— They would never follow you. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness means reminding ourselves that we are declared righteous by the judge himself. Second, righteous character protects us from harm. 
Proverbs 13, 6, Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. God is not a pragmatist. The ends do not justify the means. Often we are tempted to fulfill a legitimate goal the wrong way. Making a commitment to be scrupulously honest in business, however, helps protect us from the temptation later to bend corners when we have opportunity. Putting their bodies on the altar and making a commitment to God's standards for sex helps protect a couple from temptation before marriage. Deciding ahead of the party how many drinks are enough helps avoid too many. Job, who was known for being righteous, made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman ahead of the temptation. He trained himself to bounce his eyes away from women who were showing way too much of their bodies. Pursuing righteousness brings enormous protection to our lives, just as the breastplate protected Roman soldiers. Third, righteous character protects us from misunderstanding the Lord's leading. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 11.5 agrees, saying, The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. When seeking the Lord's leading, it is vital to settle the obedience issue first, that you will obey God even if it is the decision that you do not want. By intentionally putting this decision on the altar— that is, giving God his right to rule you, it protects your heart from steering you in the wrong direction. Twice God warns us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A prior commitment to doing the right thing is putting on the armor of righteousness. It helps protect our hearts from being seduced later by temptation and leading us in the wrong direction. Jesus, of course, is the great example here. The evening before his trial and crucifixion, ahead of all of his mistreatment, pain, and maybe temptation to avoid the unimaginable agony of becoming sin on the cross, Jesus settled the issue of his obedience the night before. He pled with the Father, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Finally, righteous character protects us from being trapped or snared by sin. Proverbs 29.6, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. Consider the differences in the way Joseph resisted the allurement of Potiphar's wife, and the way David yielded to the alluring sight of Bathsheba. When Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him, Joseph answered her, Potiphar has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It appears by his reasoned response to her that Joseph was already committed to righteousness before the temptation struck. That's just speculation, but it sure looks that way. In contrast, David did not have a breastplate of righteousness protecting him. 
By the time he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop, David had been consistently violating God's command that Israel's kings must not multiply wives. In Deuteronomy 17:7, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. David had already married six women when he looked down on the bathing Bathsheba and decided he wanted her too. His breastplate of righteousness had gaping holes when it came to sexuality. Not only that, but the biblical account of this tragedy begins in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. The implication is that David never should have been home, but with his troops in battle. It is possible that Bathsheba was in the position of being exposed to eyes on the palace roof because she expected no men to be there. David's disloyalty to his troops is amplified in the biblical account by its contrast to the loyalty of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. David's scheme to make others think the baby was Uriah's failed because when Uriah reported home to David, he refused to have sex with his wife out of loyalty to his troops, who were not with their wives, but on the battlefield. David's breastplate of righteousness, loyalty to his troops, was down. Temptation penetrated his heart and brought devastating consequences. We all face the same forces that took David down, a deep-rooted sinful nature and powerful spiritual enemies who know just how to get us to yield to sin. In this world, we are all going to fail a lot, but affirming our commitment to righteousness, to doing things the way God's moral law shows us to live, is preemptive protection for our hearts. It is putting on the breastplate of righteousness. It is saying, Lord, I wear your righteousness today against all condemnation and corruption. Fit me with your holiness and purity, especially in these areas that I foresee tempting me. Defend me against all assaults that come against my heart. To summarize this episode, it's sad that in today's world, righteousness is understood to mean self-righteousness, works righteousness, or legalism. It does not. Rather, righteousness, dikaiosune, is conformity to the moral law of God, given in love to mankind as the way life is to be lived. For Christians, righteousness is to be sought as the highest of priorities and longed for like a starving man longs for food. But to achieve it, we must depend on Christ, the true warrior, wearing the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness for us protects us in spiritual battle these four ways. Remembering that Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account by the judge of the universe means that no voice of condemnation from our own conscience, another human, or Satan himself can be heard by God the judge. Second, pursuing the right way to achieve a goal that is, righteousness protects us from harm that results from ignoring God's ways. Third, righteous character protects us from misunderstanding the Lord's leading. Deciding first to do it God's way helps protect our hearts from the pull to achieve a legitimate goal the wrong way. Finally, righteous character protects us from being ensnared by sin. 
Every step down the path of righteousness makes the next step easier. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. For further prayerful thought, number one, what is the motivation for hungering and thirsting for righteousness for one who is confident of God's unconditional love? How does that contrast with the moralist view of the moral law? See your show notes for further questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, we continue our series, Winning Spiritual Battles Because We Use Our Spiritual Weapons, by examining a piece of armor that is also hard to understand. How are we to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace? Does this piece of armor help us be less afraid and more successful in sharing our faith? For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about this series, Winning Spiritual Battles, Because We Use Our Spiritual Weapons. Music